Section 28 of The Empresses of Constantinople This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph Maccabee Chapter 18 Part 2 Anna of Savoy After three years of indecisive warfare, Apocalchus was assassinated. He had, at the beginning of the war, filled the palace dungeons with prisoners, and he augmented their number continually with nobles or officials who ventured to dissent from his plans. In the summer of 1345, he was building a new and formidable prison in the palace grounds, and the prisoners looked with concern on the frowning edifice, and readily believed that he was going to inflict all kinds of atrocities on them. One afternoon he went, without his usual company of guards, to see how the work progressed, and imprudently entered the yard where the prisoners were. One of them snatched a heavy piece of wood and felled him, and the others, seizing the axes and tools that lay about, ended his life and exhibited his head to the guards on the other side of the wall. Anna was alarmed and perplexed, and allowed the wife of the dead minister to take a fearful vengeance. The rowers of the fleet were armed and discharged upon the prisoners, and it is said about two hundred of them were butchered. Cantagazinus now sent fresh proposals of peace, which were approved by the patriarch, and Anna made the grave and somewhat obscure blunder of rejecting them. Gregorius says that she was jealous of Irene. But Gregorius, for theological reasons which will appear presently, is not generous to the empress. It is possible that Cantacuzenus insisted on retaining his crown. However that may be, the war continued for another year, and began to turn in favour of Cantacuzenus, who now detached a large body of Turks from the service of the empress. Anna's conduct, in fact, now becomes weak and blundering. She quarrelled with the patriarch, and allowed herself to be influenced by the meaner monks and bishops who opposed him. Abacalchus had so completely relieved her of the work of administration that she paid little attention to it after his death. And as a new heresy now entered Constantinople and won a favour, she became absorbed in the theological quarrel, while her enemy crept closer to Constantinople. On the 2nd of February, 1347, Anna convoked a large gathering of bishops and monks at the Blackeny Palace. They met a judge and deposed the patriarch John, who opposed the new heresy. Its tenets do not concern us, but, as we will complicate the story of the empresses throughout the chapter, we may say that Palamism, as it was called, had discovered a plurality of divinities, in the sense of divine energies, in God, and its opponents retorted that this was a return to polytheism. The discovery is said to have been made originally by some of the contemplative monks on Mount Athos, whose quaint device for raising themselves to a state of trance cannot with delicacy be described here. On this second day of February, therefore, Anna listened with delight in her balcony palace to the heated discussion of the light which was seen on Mount Thabor and other phases of the controversy. None of the gifted seers were able to tell her that Contagazinus and his troops were only a few miles away, and that he had already bribed some of her soldiers to open the golden gate to him that very night. The patriarch was deposed, 
and Anna and her bishop sat down to a festive banquet, and the making of not very modest jokes, says Gregorus, about their late archbishop. They were alarmed for a moment by a messenger, who rushed in to say that Cantacuzenus and his army were approaching. But Anna concluded that this was a ruse of the patriarch, and the banquet continued merrily. She was awakened in the grey dawn the next morning to hear that Cantacuzenus was master of the city. He had marched with a thousand picked men by an unaccustomed route, had been admitted by the golden gate at midnight, and was making for the palace. It was at once closed and fortified, and as such guards as there were took up a position in its lower approaches. Anna had returned from the light on Mount Thabor to a very rigorous concern about earthly things. Cantacuzena sent to her a proposal that she should share the imperial title with him. Her name would come first in announcements and acclamations, but the real administration should be entrusted to him. She drove out his messengers angrily and abusively, and sent her servants to raise the citizens against him and bring over the Italian troops from Galata. There was still a good deal of loyalty to her, though her conduct during the last year had alienated many, but the troops routed her supporters, and even began to storm the palace. They were recalled by Cantacuzenus, who then sent the bishops to persuade her to yield. Cantacuzenus behaved with restraint and humanity in his hour of triumph. He was, as we recalled, a refined and cultivated noble, though his singular mingling of ambition and moral pretentiousness invests his conduct, and especially his words, with repellent hypocrisy. Anna refused the mediation of the clergy, but in the miserable night which followed, she saw the hopelessness of her position, called a council of her supporters, and decided to make peace. The prisoners were set free, and the gates of the palace thrown open. It is said that John, who was now a boy of fifteen, strongly pleaded for peace, and weakened the determination of his mother. When Cantacuzenus entered the palace, he found Anna and her son standing under a picture of the virgin which adorned the hall. The empress was sullen and defiant, and probably expected some vindictive action on the part of the victor. But this was never the way of the silken Cantacuzenus. He venerated the sacred picture, kissed the hand of the young emperor, and swore on the virgin that he had not, and had never had, any intention of hurting the imperial family. A general amnesty was granted, and a proposal to wed John and Helena was renewed. It was agreed between them that Cantacuzenus should have sole control of the empire for ten years, and should relinquish it to John on his twenty-fifth birthday. These conditions were singularly moderate, and Cantacuzenus assures us that some of the troops could hardly be persuaded to subscribe to the new wealth when it was found to include the name of John. Anna and John moreover, were left in possession of the best palace, that at the Bellagini, and Cantacuzenus repaired one of the decaying palaces for himself and Irene, who was summoned from Adrianople, and graciously received at the gate by Anna. Thus two royal families settled down once more to an unstable peace on the ruins of the once mighty empire. The coronation of Cantacuzenus and Irene which followed on the 13th of May, served only to exhibit the poverty and decay of Constantinople. St. Sophia was partly in ruins from the great earthquake of the previous year, and there was no money to repair it. 
the ceremony had to be performed in the chapel at Blarchny, and in the banquet dishes of pewter and earthenware had to serve instead of the opulent gold and silver plate of earlier times. A week later, the royal children, John was fifteen years old, and Helena, thirteen, were married, and a glittering group of two emperors and three empresses stood proudly on the balcony of the palace to receive the applause of the dwindling population. But it was commonly known that the stones which flashed from crown and mantle were almost all spurious, and that the apparent golden trappings were merely gilded leather. The treasury was empty. The nobility consisted not of the great lords of the land, but salaried officials, and the empire that had once spread under the Roman eagles to the deserts of Arabia and the waters of Euphrates was now restricted. On the Asiatic side, to so narrow a strip of the neighbouring coast that you could almost see the ramparts of Constantinople, the victorious crescent gleaming in the sun. On the west there still remained the greater part of what we know now as Turkey and Greece, but they were exhausted by the unceasing ravages of Turk, Servian, and Bulgarian, and tens of thousands of Christian slaves passed yearly into the harems and workshops of the east. In the midst of this devastation, Cantagazina set up a court of cheap and showy and incompetent dignitaries. Irene's two brothers, John and Manuel, received the title Sebastocrator, and were added to the imposing processions and lists of pensionaries. Money was urgently needed, and Cantagazina summoned to his palace all the wealthier citizens and eloquently appealed to them to fill his treasury. They refused to make the least donation. Cantagazinus would have us admire the restraint with which he declined to extort the money from them. But we know that, if he shrewdly avoided violence, he did not scruple to obtain money in other irregular ways. A few years afterwards, the Russian church sent a large sum of money for the repairing of St. Sophia, and Gregorius tells us that the emperor appropriated it for the payment of his Turkish mercenaries. Two years later, again, when another army of Turks had to be paid to defend his throne, he seized a great quantity of gold and silver vessels and jewels that remained in the churches and monasteries. We may assume that Anna watched without concern the troubles that now reigned upon the head of the impolitic emperor. In the year after his coronation, his son Michael was persuaded to rebel and set up a sovereignty over part of Thrace. Irene was sent to discuss the matter with him. Gregorius gives us a six-page speech which is supposed to have made to him, and it ended in the father leaving his son in possession, though without the imperial title. Anna's supporters naturally suggested there had been collusion between Contacuzinus and Michael, though that is not at all certain. When Irene returned from her mission, she was pained to learn that the plague had carried off her younger son during her absence. Even greater was her pain, however, the historian says, that her husband favoured the Palamite heresy. Gregorius was one of the chief protagonists of the orthodoxy against the heretics, and it will give some idea of the superfluous confusion that was brought upon the affairs of the distracted empire if I simply observe that some five hundred pages of the remainder of his chronicle are devoted to the controversy. To this heretical taint, Irene tearfully ascribed all the calamities which affected her husband's reign. He had hardly arranged matters in Thrace, and was still detained by illness at Didiomoticus, when he learned that the Genoese of Galata 
had burned the fleet which he had laboriously collected money to build, and had attacked the capital. The Genoese for some time farmed the revenues, in plainer terms, pocketed four-fifths of the revenues of Constantinople, and the emperor had endeavoured to lessen their profit. During his absence, they made a raid upon the shipping and the city, and Irene is said to have shown a great energy in directing the defence. For the next year or two, the Bulgarians and Servians ravaged his little empire, and the Turks, whom he hired to meet them, could only be paid out by permission to loot in their turn, and carry off his subjects into slavery. In these circumstances, Cantacuzenus saw a tide of disaffection rising against him, and the young Emperor John began to dream of independence. Writing years afterwards in his quiet monastic home, Cantacuzenus says that Irene and he were wary of the unprofitable conflict, and were both deposed to abdicate and take the black robe, that only the recurrence of trouble in the West and the danger to the empire kept them in the world. This statement is easily refuted by his conduct. He built not a monastery, but a stout citadel or a fortress near the Golden Gate, as if in expectation of the time when John would claim his empire, and hired a strong guard of Turkish and Spanish soldiers. Then, when the Servian outbreak in the west, of which he speaks, took place, he insisted that John should accompany him. Anna vehemently protested. The youth was too young to be left in Thessaly, she said, meaning that she distrusted the emperor. Cantacuzenus smoothly replied that it was necessary for her son's protection, that the sultan, wrongly thinking to oblige him, had sent a eunuch to cut the youth's throat. Anna must have felt that the eunuch, if he existed, would have an easier task in Thessaly than in the Balashini palace, but Cantacuzenus refused to yield, and John set out with him. John was now a good-looking and popular, if a somewhat dissolute and entirely worthless, prince of eighteen, and it would be dangerous to leave him in Constantinople. The Genoese across the water were partisans of the Pelioshi. In the following year, 1351, Cantacuzenus returned to attack the Genoese with the aid of their mortal enemies, the Venetians. As he seems to have intended from the beginning, he left John in Thessalonica with the young Empress Helena, but he was alarmed, surprised in the following year, to hear that the young emperor was corresponding with the Kral of Servia. Gregorius says that, under pressure from the Kral, John engaged to divorce Helena and marry the Kral's sister. When Cantacuzenus heard this, he went with Anna into the venerable chapel of the Virgin of Blasheny, and swore he would resign the crown to John if he would abandon the Kral and bring Helena to Constantinople. The oath was committed to writing, and Anna herself conveyed it to Thessalonica. It says something, for the singular character of Cantacuzenus, that they implicitly trusted his oath, and the young couple returned to the capital. After a few weeks, however, John distrusted his colleague, and returned to Thras with Helena. Her father seems to have tried to detach her from John, but she protested. Gregorius says that she would rather die with John than live with her parents. In return, apparently, for this fidelity, John made a new compact with the Kral and received an army without abandoning his wife. He had once attacked Matthew, the emperor's son, in Adrianople, and let civil war loose once more upon the surviving province of the empire, 
if, indeed, one can call civil war, a contest in which hardly a single Greek soldier was enlisted. For the sake of rival Byzantine ambitions, Turk fought Servian and Bulgarian on land, and Venetian fought Genoese at sea, and the decrepit empire sank into its last stage. In return, apparently, the Empress Irene once more endeavoured to make peace with the combatants. She went to Thrace and laid before the young emperor a politic and admirable scheme. Admirable, at least, on the supposition that Cantagazinus is lying when he declares that he and Irene were minded to enter a monastery, which would have been the best solution. On the other hand, John does not command our sympathy and respect. In three years' time he would be twenty-five, and might have laid claim to the throne with perfect right and more success. Irene proposed that John and Matthew should divide the western territory, and that Contagizinus should hold the remainder until his death. John refused the terms. Irene returned to court, and the Turks and Servians flew at each other. It is only necessary to say that in a comparatively short time, John and Helena were flying on ships to the island of Tanados, and Matthew was declared emperor. The unceasing pendulum of Byzantine court now had thrust the young Empress Helena into obscurity, and brought her young rival into prominence and hope of succession. John and Helena were declared to have forfeited the imperial title. Matthew and Irene Paleologina, granddaughter of the elder Andronicus, were crowned in 1354. But we have hardly time to glance at the new empress before the pendulum swims back, and Helena returns to the light and the throne. Contagizinus was now detested by all in Constantinople. His heresy, his broken oath, his feud with the Genoese, and the consistent record of disaster during his reign united almost every class against him. Urgent appeals were made to John to come and displace him, and it was not long before a few ships were placed at his disposal, and, during an absence of the emperor, he descended on the capital. But Irene again vigorously defended the cause of her husband, and after sailing the walls, firing a few harmless volleys of abuse at the partisans of the emperor who smiled on the walls, and spending a night with the Italians at Galata, John returned in dejection to his wife and child. Then a quaint type of wealthy adventurer chanced to touch at the port of Tanados and confer with John, and he returned to power by one of the most singular of adventures. One stormy night in December 1354, when the emperor slept peacefully in his palace, the soldiers who lived in the tower which guarded one of the gates by the port were awakened by a heavy crash and loud cries for help. They flung open the gate and descended the stairs, and faintly perceived a few large vessels rolling in the heavy sea. The sailors cried that one of their vessels, which were laden with jars of oil, had been dashed against the walls, and the soldiers went to the water-edge to help them to moor the vessels. Scores of armed men then rushed from the holds, killed the guards and occupied the tower, and before the citizens could grasp what was happening, the enterprising Genoese had lodged John in the tower, and were marching through the streets at the head of two thousand men, crying, Long live the Emperor John! The citizens swarmed to the Hippodrome, to the, in the fading morning light, repeating the cry, and Contagusinus was awakened to hear that his enemies was in the city 
with an army. It is worthwhile giving the explanation of this remarkable change in the fortunes of John and Helena. Their vigorous and resourceful ally was a Genoese noble of some wealth, who, with a small fleet, had sailed east in the hope of securing some fragments of the dismembered empire. John offered him the island of Lesbos, and the hand of his sister Maria, if he would help him gain the throne, and he consented. Two large triremes, galleys with two banks of oars, and sixteen uniremes, with one bank of oars, were not the kind of fleet one needed to carry Constantinople by storm. But Francesco Gutelucio was a strategist. He emptied the oil from the vessels on one of his boats, crept up to the wall in the darkness, and bade the soldiers fling the great jars against the wall. This was the noise that awakened the warders of the tower by the quay, and the stratagem succeeded as happily as in a romance. I may add that John afterwards carried out his compact, and Gutelucio became Prince of Lesbos and brother-in-law of the Emperor. Cantacuzenus did not venture from his palace. He explains that he could have easily scattered the intruders, which is probably more true than he knew at the time, but he conferred with Irene, and they decided that the time had come to enter a monastery. Gregorius says that he was afraid to leave the palace, and, as he was isolated from his citadel by the Golden Gate, and would hardly know the strength of his opponent, one prefers this explanation. He was by no means anxious to enter a monastery. Drawing up his guards at the entrance to the palace, he entered into negotiations with John, and succeeded in getting a promise that the imperial power would be divided. That solution, however, did not please the people, and for several days he was assailed with abuse and threats. He yielded to the voice of God, abdicated his dignity, and under the name of Joasaph, retired to the monastic world to write his flowing and elegant and mendacious chronicle of his times. Irene was now forced to take the veil, and a robust personality was converted into the black-robed figure of the royal nun Eugenia. We do not know when she died, but some years later we find her in her monastery, guiding the education of her granddaughter Theodora. Theodora's parents, Matthew and Irene, continued the civil war for two or three years, but Matthew was then captured and was sent with his ex-empress to spend the remainder of their lives in the island to which they had driven John and Helena. Helena had followed her victorious husband, and, with warm and mutual embraces, joined him at the palace. We do not know how long she lived to enjoy her fortune. I find no further reference to her. Anna was not mentioned further in the Byzantine chronicles, but a little more may be gleaned about her from Italian writers. Du Cange quotes the Franciscan historian Luke Wadding as saying that she died about the year 1350, and her body was transferred for burial to the shrine of St. Francis of Assisi, for whom she had had a great veneration. I do not find in this in Wadding the reference, at least, is wrong, but Wadding does in other pages at the years 1343 and 1349 refer to Anna. In 1343 she sent a Franciscan monk from the convent at Pera to confer with the Pope in regard to the union of Latin and Greek churches. It is clear she remained Latin at heart, and no doubt she had brought with her from the West a veneration for the gentle saint of Assisi. Then the civil war and the triumph of Cantacuzenus put an end for a time to the project of a union. But the correspondence was renewed in 1349. From a reference to her in one of the Pope's letters, we may deduce that she still lived at Constantinople in 1349, 
and it is the last reference. An Italian writer says she died in that year, but I am unable to find in Wadding's annals the statement that she was buried at Assisi. End of section 28 Recording by Evere The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph Maccabee